0: This is an RNZ podcast.
1: A quick warning. This podcast includes allegations of child sexual abuse, so listener discretion is advised. If any of the details are triggering, please talk to someone. If you're in New Zealand, you can call or text 1737 to speak with a trained professional.
2: There's no smoke without fire. And I look people full in the eye and I go, I didn't build that fire. I didn't stick a match to that fire and I have not been blowing smoke around obfuscating the troops about that fire. That fire started over in the Northern Hemisphere and it came over here.
3: In the dying days of 1991, Peter Ellis was out of a job. He was hardly alone. New Zealand's unemployment rate was at all time highs, over 11%. The country was fighting its way out of recession. Around the world, the Soviet Union was dissolving and the Cold War was fizzing out.
2: Military leaders and the Soviet secret police have taken control of the government and now... After six
1: and a a half years in power, Mikhail Gorbachev confirmed his resignation on television tonight.
3: Little-known governor Bill Clinton announced he would run for president.
2: This is not just a campaign for the presidency. It is a campaign for the future.
3: And Freddie Mercury died of AIDS.
1: Mercury, lead singer with the group Queen, died only two days after confirming that he was suffering from AIDS. He was 45.
3: But there was something else dominating world headlines too. Claims of ritual satanic child abuse. And as Peter Ellis says, what started as a few sparks here and there in Canada, the USA, then Britain, spread like wildfire. And by 1991, the flames had reached New Zealand. I'm Ali Jones and this is Conviction, the Christchurch Civic Crash case, episode three, The Perfect Storm.
4: And I'm Alexander Beezer. To quickly bring you up to speed, Peter Ellis has been suspended after a three-year-old boy said, I don't like Peter's black penis. The police began an investigation, but it was dropped soon after for lack of evidence.
3: But just as it looked like the fuss might all just go away, that the first complaint might be the only complaint – it all roared back to life. The claims that would emerge put Peter Ellis and the Civic Crash at the heart of New Zealand's most contentious child abuse case. For months the story dominated the news, and 30 years later the repercussions and uncertainty remain. In this
4: episode, we'll take up the crash story again, but we'll also look at the wave of almost identical accusations that broke in the US and Canada and then spread around the world.
0: You didn't know whether you were supposed to speak to your children about um, Peter and the other staff at the crash or not.
5: Let's have faith in the police, but no, it just sort of took on a life of its own. You wait, there's going to be an outbreak of moral panic here.
6: She said, you need to brace yourself because this is the most bizarre shit you've ever heard. Because it's the most bizarre shit I've ever heard.
3: Through the 1991 Christmas holidays, Peter Ellis is left sitting at home, not working. But at this stage, he's also not the subject of an active police investigation. Journalist Martin Van Banen recalls the mood in town.
7: There was a certain atmosphere and... I don't think we should overstate this, but there was definitely a feeling that secret and, and evil things were happening behind doors that would one day be exposed.
3: When the allegations of sexual abuse at the Civic Crash came to light, staff began hearing rumours.
4: Debbie, one of Peter's co-workers, remembers one in particular.
8: Has anybody told you about the Park Royal Ferry? The Park Royal Hotel was being built while we worked at the Civic, and that was this glass elevator. And when it was finished, before they didn't give access to the public anymore, because it was really close by, we used to take the kids out on walks. Peter would sometimes take a group of children to the park to go up in a glass elevator. It was wonderful. The other thing, because we were run by the City Council, The council would have groups of people coming from, I think, like, there's a sister city in Japan or something, and sometimes there would be groups of people, like teachers or, I don't know, people to do with the education system, and they would be brought through the childcare centre to look at how it runs and things. These real-life events
4: became something more sinister.
8: Somebody told us, I can't remember how this started, that Peter had this kind of whole industry going of producing pornographic movies involving the children perhaps done at the Park Royal Hotel and being sold on and somehow these Asian businessmen were involved and, you know, we were like his harem.
2: Christchurch was, was the perfect storm for it. It's a little bit like if the Salem witches.
3: So, the Salem witch trials happened in the 1690s. Around 200 people were accused of witchcraft and about 20 of them executed. A sort of hysteria took over the town in northeastern America. But if we're looking for a useful comparison, the Civic Crash case was perhaps more like something that had happened much more recently, still in the US
9: and still something of a witch hunt. I'm Mary DeYoung. I'm a recently retired professor of sociology at Grand Valley State University in Michigan. Dr. DeYoung specializes in studying child abuse and is the author of a book on
3: what's called the Satanic Panic.
9: Well, the book that I wrote really had to do with the daycare ritual abuse moral panic that began with the McMartin Preschool case, very infamous case in 1982 in California.
2: The McMartin Preschool in Manhattan Beach, California. The scene, it is alleged, of one of the biggest and most bizarre cases of sexual abuse of children in anyone's memory. It's the longest and most expensive criminal trial in U.S. history.
9: It took 11 years, I think, almost, to bring this case to a legal conclusion. And so it was on people's lips a great deal.
2: What made this case so sensational, so gruesome, was the accusation that 41 youngsters over a six-year period had not just been sexually molested, but had also been forced to participate in satanic rites and pornographic pictures. When the children started talking, they started talking about robes and candles. They described an Episcopal church. This is what 1,200 molested kids have told the sheriff's department. Uh, That's a third of the school system. This is the child molestation capital of the world.
8: This, of course, is where it all began as far as uh, the allegations against nursery uh, schools. The people
9: who were associated with the case and coaxing the narratives out of these children um, became kind of rock stars and appeared on television and conferences, uh, trainings, all over the world. Those rock stars were social
3: workers, doctors, psychiatrists and counsellors, and a few of them came to this part of the world to spread the word. It was around this time that the rumours of satanic and ritual abuse began to take hold here in New Zealand. There'd already been hints of this happening, and we covered some of this in the last episode, like the rapid rise in child sex abuse cases being reported, the mention of Australia's Mr Bubbles case, which came up at the first crash meeting, even rumours of the great Christchurch child porn ring.
4: When Pete Ellis was first accused, these rumours were running rife.
2: Jennifer was coming home with, with what she'd been told by the police. And uh, it all started to um, sound uh, rather satanic.
4: This is Winston. His wife Jenny, actually Jennifer as he calls her, worked at the crash.
2: The internet was not very strong then. Certainly I didn't have the internet then. So I hit the libraries and uh, delved into satanic abuse.
3: It's hard to imagine a world without Google at our fingertips these days, but in the early '90s, there was Winston holed up in the library with dial-up speed internet, looking for information on satanic ritual abuse. He turned up articles from the New York and LA Times.
2: Boy, and those those articles were what Jennifer was telling me, and uh, the, the similarities were just mind blowing. Uh, and it all seems to have stemmed from California.
3: From California and actually all across America.
2: Tonight, the startling, sobering results of a 2020 investigation. Satanism, devil worship is being practised all across the country. We
7: have all types of perversion going on and it's affecting
2: America. When we drilled down, um, we certain names popped up. And uh, it turns out that a lot of these um, leaders in California had been to England, spread the gospel there, and had actually been to Australia and New Zealand. And lo and behold, the same, the same claims arose in the Peter Ellis thing.
4: Winston became one of Peter Ellis's staunchest supporters, and he was convinced that the satanic panic in the US and Canada was directly influencing events here.
3: Professor Mike Hill from Victoria University in Wellington was in fact to come to the same conclusion. Yes,
5: I'm a sociologist and my initial interest was in the sociology of religion. But then I got more and more into the sociology of deviance.
4: At the same time Winston was digging around in local libraries, Hill was also tracking the wave of ritual abuse cases. He began researching the source of the satanic panic.
5: It all came together in 1980. And in 1980, a book was published uh, called Michelle Remembers. And this was uh, the um, account, so-called, of uh, a, a woman, Michelle Smith, with her psychiatrist, Lawrence Pazda, who whom she subsequently married, accounting for her uh, childhood spent in a, a satanic cult. Um, it's pretty much off the wall. I mean, she has... Horn surgically attached uh, and a tail surgically attached, uh, and then she completely forgets the whole thing until she meets her psychiatrist.
3: The book was an overnight success. Smith went on shows like Oprah. Here she is with Pazda talking to Canadian journalist Jack Webster.
10: Basically, what I remembered was a 14 month period of my life at age five, about three months, three and a half months into the remembering. I realized through the ritual and repetition that these people had that they were involved in some type of satanic church or worship.
2: Did you recall anything about animal or human sacrifices?
10: They, they sacrificed animals, and they used fetuses of babies in their ceremonies.
9: I have to say that the evidence is clear that this came from an experience that Michelle had. There has been nothing that I've been able to unearth that says it
1: didn't.
3: The book, Michelle Remembers, was later thoroughly debunked, but the idea of satanic ritual abuse had taken off, and there were many other copycat accusations. The
2: Investigative News Group presents the Geraldo Rivera Special. This is not a Halloween fable. This is a real-life horror story, and it will give small children bad dreams. This is from
3: a documentary called Devil Worship, exposing Satan's underground. And in 1988, it was the highest-rating two-hour documentary in TV history, beaming into nearly 20 million homes across the US.
2: No region in this country is beyond the reach of the devil worshiper. Do you think that this ritualistic stuff is spreading? It's all over the United States and probably all over the world.
9: People don't want to believe that an adult would do this to a a child but if you look at a child's behavior a child who's been ritually abused there is no way that you can say that these things that they're talking about didn't happen to them I actually got called about that show uh, to be interviewed for it but uh, I declined <laughs> that may tell you something
4: this is Professor Gal Goodman, a psychologist who has been studying children's memory and testimony in court cases since the 1970s.
3: In fact, she appeared as an expert witness for the Crown in recent legal action about the Civic crash case. Goodman was part of a study in the mid-1990s surveying police departments, prosecutors and clinicians all over the US to actually put these claims of satanic abuse to the test. We found
11: basically no good evidence for this kind of satanic cults that were abusing kids and infiltrating uh, different places. But uh, we did find some lone couples or individuals who had satanic um, ideas and were abusing children.
3: So its main finding was that, quote, most cases of ritual abuse were probably false, but not all.
4: But... By the time that debunking kind of research was being done, Professor Hill had already started to see the same kind of thinking emerging here in New Zealand as early as 1991.
5: I heard that there'd been this group set up in Wellington, the Ritual Action Group. And I remember coming back and uh, lecturing in sociology of religion and saying, you wait, there's going to be an outbreak of moral panic here on the issue of satanic abuse. I hadn't realised it had already begun in Christchurch.
7: There was a family violence conference in Christchurch just eight weeks before the first delegation against Peter Ellis.
4: Journalist Martin van Beenen went along to report on it
7: of counsellors from Wellington started talking about sex rings, child sex rings, satanic abuse and, you know, this middle-class phenomenon of these secret rings taking children away and taking film and photos and producing this child pornography.
4: It's not hard to see how this fear all sort of snowballs. Mary de Young explains.
9: Sexual abuse of children had come out of the closet as a problem. It was being talked about for probably the very first time. And so when children would make kind of vague comments about uh, a body part or a particular action, usually at that point, and I think we can all be very understanding about this, a parent comes to a terrible conclusion or at least probability that the child has been sexually abused.
4: Hey Kelly, it's Alex here from New Zealand. How are you? How are you? Not too bad, uh, although we are in lockdown at the moment.
6: Yeah, I've heard. So you know. um It's nice to talk to you.
4: Finally, you I know it's. German. Be- I am German. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, I can hear the New Zealander, <laughs> but I do hear the German. I'm on the line to Kelly Michaels, who lives in New Jersey in the U.S. She used to work at a childcare centre called WeCare.
6: My case was as similar as others in that it was an innocuous innocuous statement by a child. In fact, my case predated Peter Ellison.
4: One day in early 1985, she took a child's temperature with a forehead thermometer, thinking he might be coming down with a fever.
6: A child was taken to the doctor, and the nurse said, I'm going to take a temperature, and she did the thermometer rectally, and he said, my teacher takes my temperature at school.
4: The child's comment was mistakenly taken to mean Kelly Michaels had been taking children's temperatures rectally.
6: And uh, so that was passed on to the mother. They went home. The mother then questioned the child. And that's, that's exactly how it all started.
9: And then from that point, typically the scenario in a case would be that parent would contact other parents who would talk to their children. This is Mary DeYoung again. And the questions that were asked were terribly provocative of these really egregious and many times totally bizarre statements that the children would say. Um, Then eventually the children would get to a social worker or somebody else um, who was assigned to assess whether what they were saying was true or not and kind of get to the bottom of it. And if those people then endorsed... Uh, the ritual abuse notion, then typically that added to the story.
4: What happened then between you being brought back and the whole thing then suddenly catching up with you again?
6: They put some cops and social workers on the case. They said, we're going to go into the daycare itself and begin interviewing children. And they had these sessions, these weekend sessions, where they trained cops in the use of, of anatomic dolls, where they would teach the cops, um, you know how addressed dolls and asked questions. You know, uh, uh, sexual, explicit questions about the, you know, the, the male and female genitalia, the body parts, and blah blah blah. I had no idea how bizarre it was going to get.
4: In the end, hundreds of children were interviewed, which led to Kelly Michael's arrest. There was never any forensic evidence nor any adult witnesses. Kelly was held in prison for two years before going to trial.
6: My lawyer comes to meet me in. The cell behind the judge's chambers, she said, you need to brace yourself because this is the most bizarre shit you've ever heard, because it's the most bizarre shit I've ever heard. And she began to read the charges, you know, uh, making poopy cakes and sticking knives in little children's rectums and um, threatening to fly through windows and kill the children and all, just on and on. And I fell to my knees in that holding cell and started falling apart. I was sobbing and she started yelling at me. So for my benefit, so you have to hold yourself together. That courtroom is now filled with a bunch of effing press and parents that are want to hang you up, you know, um, on a tree outside uh, and burn you. You have to calm down. I was convicted um, for the sentence of 37 years, a minimum of 14 years was my sentence.
3: Kelly Michaels was convicted of 115 counts of abuse against 20 children. She spent over five years in prison before an appeal court threw out her conviction. The appeal court judges rejected the findings and methods of the experts. These experts included a prominent psychologist who claimed the children's testimonies and some of their behaviours meant they had been abused.
4: Kelly says the case itself was so harmful for everyone involved, especially the children.
6: They were um, directly um, damaged by the system, by the very lawyers and prosecutors and social workers and psychologists at all that um, made a name for themselves at their expense. One thing for the court to throw your case out, it's not really enough. It'll never really be enough because of the the scars, the the destruction of your reputation, um, the wounds from the accusers such Despicable, terrible things. Um, you can never do that. You know, years lost and all of that stuff, you know.
4: By 1992, some people felt this same kind of hysteria that fueled the case against Kelly Michaels had reached New Zealand. And journalist Martin Van Bainen was picking up on plenty of believers within the civic crash community.
2: Yeah, there was the hardcore group that, that believed in the satanic abuse angle. You can, you can almost see it, the, the way the children talked. Their parents were the, were the believers in the satanic abuse ring.
4: Do you think there were parents who believed in satanic ritual abuse?
7: Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. They do.
4: They did. This is the crash teacher I'm calling Susanna. Susanna was one of the younger teachers at the crash. They
7: totally bought it because, you know... I mean, because there was no physical evidence of any of these treasures... Um, you know, they, The way that they were able to justify it was that we had, had this sort of miraculous power over their children.
3: But there's another way to look at all this.
10: The moral panic I see. It's, it's quite bizarre really because it's quite true there was a moral panic.
3: This is the aunt of one of the children who accused Peter Ellis of abuse. We're calling her Rose.
10: For us it's the other way. The media just got hold of the wrong end of the stick. The moral panic went that it was was being made up, whereas uh, (laughs) it should have been the other way.
3: She says the claims of a moral panic overshadowed the true crimes and all of a sudden the victims were painted as the bad guys.
10: Because we couldn't make friends with anybody, it wasn't safe, we weren't allowed to, absolutely forbidden from speaking to any media, whereas of course the supporters weren't, so got all their advocates lined up and their relationships set up and their voices out there, and uh, there was no voice. The way Rose
3: sees it, the Michaels case, Mr. Bubbles, all the Oprah specials, they made it too easy for people to dismiss genuine cases of abuse. Every abuse claim could be tarred with the moral panic brush. And the way the courts work, the presumption of innocence, the need to protect the privacy of the victims, it all means victims are too easily ignored.
10: Yeah, families are silenced in that way in the media all the time. It's the only way it can be.
3: Rose reckons the moral panic argument in the 80s and 90s, rather than amplifying claims of abuse, making people see abuse when it wasn't there, it actually meant that the public, the media, the police, they all missed the real crimes. The extreme claims hid the
10: more mundane evil. Because they hadn't yet heard Bill Cosby. He
4: is a sexually violent predator. Ordering Cosby be cuffed and immediately
10: sent to prison. All the other big major ones that have happened since around the world and in New Zealand. So the abuse and care inquiry that's going on now. The government's established an independent royal commission to investigate the abuse of those in state care. It was actually so widespread in care that, you know, predators go to where there are victims. We know that now better than we did then.
4: The charges against Cosby were for sexual assault and were eventually thrown out by an appeals court on what many considered a technicality. But there were many child abusers from that period who now have been convicted.
3: Rolf
12: Harris
7: has been charged with 13 child sex offences. The late Sir Jimmy Savile was also a predatory sex offender.
8: I can tell you that Gary Glitter
2: has been found guilty of a string of historical child sex charges. She was sexually assaulted by Director Roman Polanski. Abuse
10: at Dilworth School what wasn't widespread knowledge then was you know some of these other really big abuse cases we've had since that are now you know well known it just wasn't heard of then so it was thought it was unthinkable it's not unthinkable because we know now all of these other things were actually happening at the same time they just weren't thought of or thinkable hello michael
11: good morning
4: good morning how are you
10: Doing okay, how are
4: you? This is Executive Producer Tim Watkin on the phone to Associate Professor Michael Salter in Sydney, Australia.
11: Uh, my morning has been fine. This is a week where I actually have time to do some writing, which is a nice... Change.
3: Dr Salter is the Sentier Associate Professor of Criminology at the University of New South Wales and President of the International Society for the Study of Trauma and Dissociation. He got into this field after a flatmate told him she'd been a victim of organised abuse and he realised the problem might be more widespread than anyone knew. Salt is no stranger to these arguments about moral panic.
11: So advocates for the moral panic narrative like to start their story in 1986 with the McMartin preschool case or 1980 with the publication of the book Michelle Remembers. Let's go... little earlier 1973 was the first modern investigation into child pornography it was the dean call case in the united states and it began with the discovery of the bodies of 27 murdered boys who'd been abducted sexually tortured and killed in the production of child sexual abuse material that was the beginning of investigations into organised offending against children and the production of child sexual abuse material. Over the course of the 1970s, in the United States, a number of such organised groups were identified in which, in some cases, institutions, such as scout camps or holiday camps, were established for the purpose of sexually exploiting children. That really sets the context for this offending and for investigations and prosecutions into this offending.
3: And it wasn't just the US. A daycare centre in Australia was shut down in 1988 when recordings appeared showing it had been established precisely to abuse children.
4: So prior to our story here in New Zealand, there were confirmed cases of organised abuse happening in early childhood centres.
11: There's no evidence of some kind of excessive zeal in the prosecution of child sexual abuse. You know, Australia's just spent a third of a billion dollars on a royal commission into institutional responses to child sexual abuse, excavating systemic failures to respond to the sexual abuse of children in the 80s and the 90s. The notion that this was a time where we were too believing of children is just ridiculous in terms of the historical record.
3: For Peter Ellis, 1992 begins quietly enough. A month's gone by since the initial investigation into sexual abuse at the creche was closed, and no more allegations have come up.
11: I still babysat for, for for creche parents that that um, believe the whole thing was, was a load of rubbish. Um,
4: this is Peter Ellis on the TV programme Queer Nation in 2003.
11: I didn't feel as though anything actually disastrous was ever going to happen, that I I thought this would just get sorted. And I kept saying I would like my job back, please. And took the dogs for a walk and fed the jokes and fed the cats and sipped along on my sherry. Well, you know, life just sort of ticked along. And, and that's what it did. It ticked along. Every now and again, I'd hear on the radio that something had happened or I'd hear from the, you know, on the, something on the TV. and But no police, no... Yeah, nothing happening. I just sort of just tootle along in my own little space there, just hearing things about myself.
4: Then, in late January 1992, he receives a letter. The city manager, having carefully considered all options available, has now come to the conclusion, since you can no longer be employed for the purpose of which you were originally engaged, your employment should be terminated. And that's a quote. With no charges pending, some people around Peter Ellis see that as particularly unfair.
3: But at least it looks like the whole thing's done and dusted, that Peter can put it behind him.
4: And then the police get a phone call from another parent.
3: Seven days after Peter Ellis was sacked from his job, on the 30th of January 1992, a seven-year-old girl was taken in for an interview with social workers. We're calling her Mandy. That's not her real name, but all the families involved in this case have permanent name suppression.
4: Now it was Mandy who gave the first formal disclosure about abuse by Pete Dallas, saying she wanted to talk about yucky touching.
3: A flurry of interviews with other children followed. The police investigation was suddenly very much back in full swing. Do you remember that? Do you remember being interviewed?
9: No.
4: Complete blank?
9: Yeah, I don't remember any of that.
4: I sat down with Opal and her mother, Miss Cedar. Again, these are pseudonyms.
3: You would have been four and a half. don't remember. Opal was at the creche just shy of a year. And there were a couple of reasons she was taken in for an evidential interview with a specialist from the Department of Social Welfare. Because um, so many of the other children had named her as
0: present. When um, the... Um, abuse was supposed to have happened um, and but there was another thing too and it feels a bit weird saying it in front of her but she actually started um for a very brief time having quite sexualized play humping teddies and things like that and um and i think that was another thing that sort of made me think oh gosh that's unusual I don't know why that was, I mean it may have been because of what was going on with the other children and whether they had behaved like that, Um, I can't remember.
4: But what she does remember is waiting.
0: I sat in a waiting area for the evidential interview and mm, I can't remember how long but it was at least an hour, maybe longer. Mm.
4: And did you get brief what's going to happen or?
0: Um, Not really, no. I wasn't um, invited to sit in. I wasn't, it's not like there was a, a room where I could sit and watch what was happening. It was um, very much, you wait here and we'll do the interview, evidential interview and then bring her back. And she was interviewed by uh, Suicide, And um, suicide, uh said to me, um, no, there's nothing, nothing's been disclosed and I haven't got any concerns and she doesn't need to come back which um, I wouldn't have brought her back anyway I don't think it was really tricky because you didn't know whether you were supposed to speak to your children about what was what was being um, said about um, Peter and the other staff at the crash or not and and I thought no I'm going to actually Um, take the bull by the horns and I sat down and said some of the people at the creche are saying that Peter's done uh, bad things to children at the creche and that you have been there when these bad things have happened has anything bad ever happened at the creche with Peter that that you want to tell me about or that you can think of and um, she said to me yes and I thought oh gosh here we go and she said Peter hit me on the head with a book when I wouldn't sit down at story time and um, I went, oh, and was there anything else? No, no, no. And, I said, and that was pretty much it. We didn't really discuss it again after
3: that. Doug and Liz Reid's daughter Adelaide was going to the creche when these claims of abuse began circulating. Did you do any of the interviews?
7: My parents said to me that they opted for me to not be interviewed because I was such a storyteller that I totally would have gone in there and said whatever anyone wanted to hear in incredible detail, not realising what, it, you know, what I was saying, just because I love telling stories. I do remember one time at Crash, kind of it being really serious and, and some people coming and the teachers kind of talking in murmured voices and just having a sense that something was going on.
2: From New Zealand, and around the world. This is 2020.
7: So now you show me what really happened. He
3: came along and touched, touched, touched me, touched, touched me. Years later, in 1997, Mandy's interview, the one that kicked the whole investigation off again, was reenacted on the Current Affairs Program 2020.
7: And then I said no, and I ran away, and he ran away because he didn't want to be caught. And he, and I always
4: knew it was him. Doug and Liz were totally surprised when this new allegation came up. They'd been friends with Mandy's parents and she was never actually enrolled at that crash. She'd only sometimes came by with her parents to pick up her younger sibling. She spent a bit of time there, you know, and and that's why it was so odd that she made that accusation. Which,
6: I don't know if she ever retracted it, but we were really good friends with Then they wouldn't speak to us after that, so because we were on one side and they were on the other, and... was that really
3: for Paula another of the creche teachers an accusation from a child who didn't even attend the creche was was just
8: absolutely impossible i mean you know you're talking about a half past four five o'clock in the afternoon pickup where you come into the center and have a quick chat and gather up the bags and go (laughs) um they may have come to family events you know, sort of community events that we used to have, things like potluck teas and fish and chip nights and things like that. You know, but at the time, we were still very much in the mindset of, oh, well, this is just so um, impossible that, look, let's have faith in the police. You know, they're go to sort this out. <laughs> They'll see the nonsense in this. Um, but no, it just sort of took on a life of its own.
3: After Social Worker Sue Seide had interviewed Mandy, she filed an official report. It emphasised Mandy's allegation of touching, but not that the little girl was only visiting the creche. It also failed to mention that Mandy claimed the touching happened in the presence of other children and adults, including her own mother. There were odd details in Mandy's claim that were also left out, like this exchange, which was also in that 2020 item
2: you were playing the xylophone there.
3: And he was on stilts when he came along.
2: Hang on, was he on stilts or not? No. Okay, remember, we've got to promise to tell the true things.
3: There's something of a pattern here, one that will be repeated in the many interviews that rolled out after Mandy's. Some aspects of the children's stories were accepted, while the more fantastical were not. Now, this goes to the heart of whether the children's testimony seemed true or not. Whereas the touching might seem plausible, the xylophone, the stilts and the presence of adults, including Mandy's mother, makes the little girl's story much less believable. But Detective Colin Ede had an explanation for the inconsistencies in Mandy's testimony. In the late 1990s, Ede wrote a letter to author Lindley Hood, who was researching her book, A City Possessed. Ede seemed to think the circumstances of Mandy's abuse just proved how clever and sneaky Alice was. Here's what he wrote.
4: Actually, let me uh, read this. When we realised that Alice had abused a child who was never at the crash for more than a few minutes at a time and right under her mother's nose, we knew we were on to something far more serious and far more widespread than we had ever imagined.
3: And in the late 90s, he also spoke to investigative journalist Melanie Reid for her report on the television program 2020.
1: I thought that it looked really serious, really bad. I think he's a very clever offender. He engages really well. He he is very skilled in dealing with both children and adults.
4: News that a child had met, fresh allegations spread like wildfire, and parents panicked, which is, I guess, to be expected, right?
9: How difficult. This is Mary DeYoung again. How absolutely overwhelming Um, it must be for a parent to even entertain the notion that their child had been sexually abused by anyone, let alone somebody in whose care you had entrusted the child, and in such a, a bizarre and horrible manner. And I don't blame parents one single bit for looking back at every experience they had with their child that was upsetting or odd or whatever and reinterpreting it in terms of the alleged ritual abuse the child had suffered at daycare.
3: Now, imagine that you're dragged into something like this. The media is full of stories of ritual abuse. The police seem to believe it. Friends you trust seem to believe it. You can understand how some parents were worried.
4: Hello, hello. No. You look exactly like on your website.
3: Oh, well, that's good. I was going to Google you and then I thought, no,
12: I won't. I'll just wait to meet him and uh, see what happens. Do you say Alex or
4: Alec? My mom calls me Alexander when I'm in trouble, so I call myself Alex.
12: Okay, and I'm Sarah and
4: not Sarah. I'm on a Zoom call to Sarah Crane. She's a psychotherapist specialising in drama therapy.
12: I rushed in to talk to you because I've just been checking on my llamas. One of them was gelded this morning.
4: These days she lives up north, but back then she was in Christchurch and provided counselling for some of those civic crash families.
12: One of the things that happened with a lot of families was that one parent, and this was particularly if, if they were separated, one parent wanted the child or children to have an evidential interview and to go to therapy, and the other parent didn't. You know, they those kind of conflicts and a lot of relationships were put under huge huge stress and because they were families with young children there were often people who didn't earn that much who perhaps really relied on two incomes which is why their child went to childcare. and so there was a huge amount of guilt and shame have i exposed my child to something you know terrible that we can never do anything about
3: It could be true that the allegations of abuse got out of hand, but that doesn't mean that there was no abuse. One person who was closely involved in the case but didn't want to be interviewed said that for every outlandish claim made by the children, there were many more that were credible. And as we've said, there are very few from the complainant side of this case who were comfortable speaking out, and it wasn't an easy decision for Sarah either. I had to think
12: very carefully about do I want to talk to you or not. And then there's something for me about wanting to honor those children and, you know, speak the truth for them.
4: During the time she worked with crash families, she said she actually spent most of her time talking to parents.
12: One thing was that some of the parents had... Talked, they talked a lot among themselves. And apparently, some time ago, some of the children had started bedwetting quite suddenly. And when the mums talked to each other and they found, you know, each other's children where they were all bedwetting, they thought, oh, it must be a stage they're going through. And then retrospectively, they felt awful because they thought, well, that was, you know, something maybe we should have taken more notice of. When I saw the children, the children who I saw, Um, they were quite disturbed, like quite anxious, quite frightened. And, of course, when children are that little, they don't, you know, they don't use language and they don't have the same sort of concepts as we do. And so when they were talking about play, I mean, everything was mixed up together. And I think I got a picture of Peter perhaps being a very playful, charismatic kind of, teacher who was incredibly engaging and some of the children just absolutely loved being with him and would do anything he wanted and he did have favourites and so there was I think quite a lot of vying for his attention. I have absolutely no doubt in my mind that um, that Ellis was guilty of abusing some of those children. I don't know that the the facts and the you know the hows and wheres were accurate but i know some pretty horrible things happened
3: as the police continue building their case they ask peter ellis's fellow crash workers to try to convince him to confess debbie gillespie didn't know what to think
8: i also remember just believing it because it was the authorities I mean, I'd never had anything to do with the police before this, you know. I mean, I thought the cops were the guys that went and, you know, they went and got the bad guys. I had, I was very, very naive, really, when I think about it. So I think most of us just assumed that if the police were saying that Peter had done these things, then it had happened. And I'd, we were just shocked.
4: And like Debbie, Susanna initially felt she had to do what the police said.
7: One of the things we were asked to do was go around and sort of address the issue with Peter in a in a way to kind of I don't know intimidate him or um, try to get some sort of confession that he had done X Y or Z. And this is in the context we had no idea what the accusations were or who the you know who was making the accusations. Just that there had been several children and I didn't realise till later that the police had no compulsion about being truthful about anything when they were trying to manipulate people. I do remember this quite vividly and we, we rang up and arranged to go around and um, and what have you and we just talked through everything and and I just absolutely knew that if he had he appeared he didn't have any sort of there was no kind of guilt or avoidance or evading or anything. And I thought, well, he's either a spectacularly good actor or there's nothing here for us to see. He actually said, well, because we were saying, well, why would people be saying this about you, Peter? There's no, you know and he was quite rightly saying, well, you were there too, and what did you say? And we said, well, nothing, but they wouldn't be making these accusations if there wasn't some truth in it, because that's where we were at that point. And and we just couldn't... And you could see he was completely, completely kind of broken by us saying this, and also that he had no answers. And then he said something like, you know... Well, the only thing I can say is that I've got some sort of condition where I have complete, you know, amnesia to my actions. Is that possible? And we're thinking, not that we know of. This is lonely. Hunt talking to Zoe in the afternoon of the 13th of November 1995.
4: Zoe's another of Peter's colleagues. She's spoken to me, but this interview with author Lindley Hood was done a few years after Peter Ellis' arrest, and I really like it. Zoe's recall is very clear.
7: And here was Colin E, and I can remember just sitting there absolutely shaking because he told us that our, our crash had had this terrible paedophile and we hadn't realised it or we hadn't taken the notice we should have taken, and here was he, and it was going to make world history and that we were to make a statement about anything we knew about Peter and anything we could do to help, anything to help with this paedophile would be helpful. And that is really where things ran, to my point of view, ran amuck because some of them tried desperately to try and think of something that Peter might have done. Like Paula said that she saw him coming out of the tort doing up his fly. Well, I mean that sort of thing was just blown up out of proportion.
3: Early on in the investigation, Detective Ede was in charge with one supervisor above him. He was almost single-handedly responsible for dealing with the parents, children, doctors, interviewers and all the psychologists involved. The childcare worker under investigation in the civic childcare molestation case left when the inquiry began last month. His lawyer says it's odd. Today he told One Network News... Police are acting in an extraordinary fashion. My client was interviewed last year and hasn't been spoken to since. For police, this was a complex case, so the delays were hardly surprising. But before long, word came down to Ede from his superiors. Time's up. If you're going to arrest Alice, do it now.
4: So on March 30th, 1992, on Alice's 34th birthday... Colin Eade and three other officers arrived at this door. Now I've got the search warrant, and here's what they were looking for. Photographs showing either a child or Peter Ellis with a child. A diary or diaries detailing any contact Peter Ellis had with children. Any sound or videotapes recording children, books, magazines or periodicals relating to sexual acts, homosexuality or sexual contact with children. Clothing or personal effects used by children. And it ends with... This is to authorise you to enter and search.
7: And that's when just about everything went to custard in a whole bunch of ways.
3: Next time, Money Talks. We hear about the lure of a $10,000 payout for victims and how Peter's arrest on his birthday plays out.
2: When the police came round looking for my child pornography
3: Police believe the number of complaints could grow to 50, perhaps more. The investigation could take months, even years, to complete. The families at that time were so
12: distressed and so angry. And I think even at that stage, that sort of big divide was happening in Christchurch.
5: The horror that you feel when you
11: have suborned your own good judgment. is the regret of my life.
1: Thanks for listening to Conviction, the Christchurch civic Crash case hosted by Ellie Jones and Alexander Beezer. Conviction was made by Monsoon Pictures International with support from RNZ and New Zealand On Air. The series was written and produced with help from Aleki Siantolis, Liz Garton and Tim Watkin. Blair Stackpole was the audio engineer. Thanks go out to RNZ's commissioning team, Kay Elmers and Tim Burnell for giving this project the green light and to Hing Yi Kong for designing the web page and to Nataunga Sound and Vision for help with some of the archival audio, as well as MediaWorks, Discovery, Getty Images, TVNZ, and the Livingston Family Trust. The key image for the series is courtesy of North and South. Conviction can be found on the podcast page of the RNZ website. It's also available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and iHeart Radio. Follow the series so you don't miss an episode.